The following is a conversation that I had with Dr. Seamus McDonald about his journey in learning classical and Koine Greek, as well as comprehensible input-based teaching and learning methods. I wanted to hear his story because I thought it would be full of things that could help me with my own endeavors to go deeper into Greek, and I wasn't disappointed. He also offered some great advice for Greek learners who want to move on from a beginner or intermediate level into more challenging classical and Koine texts. Seamus is a Greek and Latin teacher who runs thepetrologist.com. He has a PhD in patristics and is also an active contributor to the CI community. He's working on some really exciting projects. So I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation and are inspired in your own Greek journey. Well, I really appreciate your time. Um, thanks for... My pleasure. Um, so I just had a... I was thinking about where I am in my own Greek skills. Mm-hmm. Thinking about, you know, obviously you're much farther than I am. And I've thought, well, how do you get from, you know, uh, where I am, which I think is an advanced beginner, low intermediate to where you are. Um, Wherever that is. <laughs> and I, as I was thinking about it, I was like, the story of how you got from point, you know, from zero to where you are could be really helpful for people like me who are trying to figure out how do we do the CI kind of thing and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yes. Um, yeah, and as I mean, as I was thinking about it the last couple of days, I mean, part of part of the story of how I got from wherever I was to wherever I am um, is is a, is realizing that that I could have got here a lot quicker and better if I'd been more if I'd been more aware from the start of what was necessary. Um, it's taken it's taken me a lot longer to get where I am than than it should take someone. Yep. <laughs> yes. So, so how did you get started in Greek? Where, uh, mm-hmm. where was uh, day one? Day one. So day one was uh, probably what, probably about twenty twenty years ago. Uh, I was doing some theological study. Uh, I, I was I was doing some independent theological study with their exams, but there was no there was no teaching. Uh, and so I sat down with mounts okay. and uh, I worked through mounts uh, on my own uh, and uh, did reasonably well. Um, Hello. Pa- passed my exams. <laughs> hey, no, not right now. I don't know where it is. You need to do something else. This is important. Okay. <laughs> You have, um, you have a daughter, right? I, I think I've heard that on the podcast. Uh, yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so I started with mounts. I uh, worked through most of mounts, uh, passed some exams. Uh, that was that was the year before I well, – no, it was two years before I went to seminary. Um, I, also, I, I'd start, I also started doing Latin at the same time. Um, and so I got far enough with mounts uh, on my own that when I got to seminary, Greek was not a particular struggle. I was, I was ahead most of the time. Um, my seminary required four years of Greek in mm. the sense that you had to, you had to cover most of a first year grammar in a traditional way uh, in first year. Uh, it wasn't mounts, but it was, it was homebrewed materials. And then in second year, we had to work through um, Wallace okay. uh, quite rigorously. And then after after first year, all the all the exegesis in New Testament was based on the Greek text. Um, so I 
that's how I got started. I, I did a lot of work. I was very interested in Greek at the time. I did a lot of, I put a lot of time in and I was doing Latin simultaneously. Um, and uh, I, I mean, so I did flashcards back then. I don't, I don't tell people to do flashcards these days unless they have to. Um, I think there are, there are better uses of time, but at the same time I used, I used flash, I used electronic flashcards to learn probably the, probably about 3000 New Testament vocab words down to about three or four frequency. Um, and I just, I just knew the grammar back to front. So that, that made the reading side of things a lot easier at the time. Um, and because I was also doing Latin, I started to branch off and do a little bit of Attic, some short courses here and there, that kind of thing. Um, I took a, I took a, a college course in um, Lysias, which is a pretty, pretty easy transition from, from Koine. Hmm. Um, that's how I got started. Yeah. Okay. So started with mounts. I, mm -hmm. I know the book that was my introduction to Greek. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I get that. Um, so electronic flashcards, something like Anki or a similar program yeah. to yeah. learn your vocab and then just exposure through exegesis classes and then some extra classes yeah. in the attic. Yeah. I liked outside of seminary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. That makes sense. Um, so how did you get from, at what point did you decide, like, how did you get from there to yeah. Then, so the next step, kind of stuff? Yeah. The next step was really, I got to the end of, so while I was, while I was in seminary, because I wasn't busy enough, I was doing a Latin, I wasn't doing a degree, but I was doing a sequence of Latin subjects uh, for a postgraduate diploma. Uh, and so I got to the end of that and I was, a couple of things kind of factored in. I, it ended up being a five-year sequence. So because you had to pick up some extra subjects along the way. Uh, I got to the end of that and I was thinking, well, I started, I started reading uh, discussions, you know, kind of um, mailing lists of, of Latin teachers and what they were doing uh, uh, and, and hearing about some, some kind of early CI stuff then. This was around 2006, seven. Um, and I discovered Lingua Latina Parise Illustrata. So mm -hmm. I started reading that. Uh, and, um, and that kind of led to some kind of light bulb moments where I went, okay, how did I get through four or five years of Latin? And I can't, I can't do what a modern language major can do. Like you wouldn't get through a French degree and, no. and not be able to read French fluently and talk about French texts in French. You, people would think that's ludicrous. So, so what, what is different about Latin and Greek? Um, and reading Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata opened my eyes to say, you, you can teach, you can, you know, you can learn Latin all in Latin. Um, so that kind of put me on a bit of a, uh, I mean, I had the same questions about Greek, but Latin was really the, the, the thing that was driving my kind of pedagogical shift to say, okay, well, why can't, why can't we do this? What is it? What is it that's stopping us? Um, and so I started looking for different materials. Uh, I started, um, I think, yeah, so I picked up Randall Booth's materials at the time from uh, Biblical Language Center. Uh, they were helpful. Um, I looked at the some of the history of Latin and Greek teaching. Uh, so people like uh, Roos and a Greek boy at home, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, 
tried to figure, I mean, he's, <laughs> that's not an easy book, I have to say. <laughs> um, certainly not what I, where I would start someone. I, I sort of feel um, like I, after we get done with that, I want to work on a Greek toddler at home. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you see, yeah, you see the things that he has in chapter one and two, I'm like, these, these are, you know, anyway. Yeah. Um, so that kind of, that kind of stuff helped to shift my thinking and, and particularly listening to Latin teachers and what they were starting to do um, at the time. Uh, people like um, Bob Patrick and, and John Piazza were kind of voices for that. And so uh, it, it became a bit of a process of, okay, you need to, you need to cobble together whatever you can, but you all, it was also a shift in mindset to say, okay, translation is not the game. Uh, reading a text as, as it is in the language is the game. Uh, so I, I shifted the way I tried to think about languages. That, mm -hmm. that, that was part of the process. Um, post, post my first seminary degree, I went on to do some further classics subjects as part of a kind of a, a graduate certificate. And I started a, a master's of theology. Um, so that's meant that I was doing more reading, uh, a lot more reading. Um, and I was involved in kind of some summer courses, winter courses, these kinds of things. So there was a kind of an ongoing kind of exposure to texts. Um, and particularly my master's ended up with me writing a thesis on Chrysostom. Uh, oh. So I was, I was reading Chrysostom's sermons and working through them, uh, well, some of them in Greek. Um, and then... Um, I mean, it was kind of a really, you know, it's kind of a, a long process that went up and down, but depending on what else was going on in life and how much time languages could have. Um, there clearly were other people doing things kind of, this was kind of 2009, 10, that kind of period. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there wasn't that much happening kind of internationally. And particularly, I think that, I think the communications that we have kind of now between people doing things in different parts of the world um, just wasn't as developed back then. Yeah. Uh, so I knew about Booth, but I didn't know about many other people doing communicative type of things. Um, uh, then in 2012, I think it was 12, um, uh, we moved to Mongolia, uh, where mm -hmm. I uh, was working for three years. Uh, the first year I was in um, full-time language study. And so right. I was learning Mongolian uh, five to six hours a day, one-on-one -on -one with tutors. Um, and by that stage, I'd also done a lot of reading in second language acquisition. Um, I, so I had a kind of a much, a much stronger linguistic basis to say, okay, this is, this is how language acquisition takes place. Um, and so even though I wasn't driving those sessions, I kind of had a much clearer idea of what should drive language acquisition. So I think that helped me, uh, helped me understand what was going on and what should be going on and not worry about things. So I did, I, I did almost no homework in my classes. <laughs> I didn't do any translation exercises. I didn't really do any flashcards for Mongolian. Um, I just tried to just tried to do what I believed would be useful, which was get exposed to Mongolian as much as possible. Yep. Um, and so that while we were there, I was not, uh, I taught some Greek. I taught some Greek through Mongolian. That was fun. Mm -hmm. um, 
but the experience of learning a, a contemporary language uh, in a fairly immersive environment and then to from the second year on I was working in, and teaching in Mongolian um, I think that shaped my overall perspective on how 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 well see I can work how quickly you can actually get reasonably proficient um, and and why that could be the case for for Greek um, Around that time, I also did a few classes with uh, Michael Halcombe, who uh, was running a conversational Koine Institute, um, which I think he's kind of shut down because he's doing other things, but he's still publishing stuff with Glosser House. Um, that was really helpful. I mean, I was doing some other online class type things. Um, it was helpful for me to see what he was doing, how he was teaching, because I wasn't really at a point where I, I had the confidence that I could teach communicatively. Um, I knew I was getting there. I knew there wasn't that much that I needed to do in terms of a lot of comprehension, but I wasn't confident enough about teaching skills. Um, so then kind of the last phase of this, this journey to where I am now is probably the last four years. Uh, we came back from Mongolia so I could uh, finish off PhD. Um, I started doing some Greek tutoring, um, uh, well, Greek and Latin tutoring. Uh, and I started doing some kind of more conversational stuff online with people, video chats, uh, both on a kind of a receiving end and a teaching end. Um, I went to a couple of Salvi um, Latin immersion weeks, Rusticadios. That gave me an experience of kind of a full week speaking Latin. Uh, and just kind of those things got me to the point where I could say, okay, I, I, I can speak well enough that I can hold a conversation and I can lead someone else in a conversation. I can, you know, on the teaching side, I can keep it all in the language. Um, I'm so, yeah, I certainly am not, I don't know where, I don't know where there is, but I'm still not there, but I can, I know I've reached a point where I can hold proficient conversations with only minimal lapses. Um, yeah. That's kind of where I'm at today. Yeah, thanks. So, so if I'm if I'm hearing your story correctly, um, you kind of fell in with some of the CI stuff. You took a like through Lingua Latina for Illustrata. You took a variety of classes, got into some Randall Booth stuff, um, and then um, had a variety of courses where you're just exposed to a lot of reading of text. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, would you say in those courses it was it was reading, but kind of like a guided reading? Yeah, a lot um, of it's guided reading. I mean, even the color, a lot of courses I've done have been traditional in format um, in the sense that, you know, the course itself might be grammar translation based, but just the, the experience of reading a lot, it's just driven, driven a lot of, uh, you know, input. Um, some of those courses have been more communicative um, and those are, have been much more enjoyable and more useful. Right. Um, Particularly the last year, I've been pretty, pretty, uh, pretty ecstatic to have a couple of reading groups where I've read through Greek texts and discussed them and, and puzzled them out in Greek without any kind of external prep work or external English. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, so, I guess my, my other question, what methods do you think have helped you the most? You've kind of answered that. It's based yeah, on lots yeah. of exposure and reading and yeah. chats and things like that. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is part of the, you know, the, what I was saying at the start, Mike, that I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't tell people to do things the way I did them because it took too long to get where I am. And I think people can get there much faster uh, if they if they're a bit smarter about what they what they spend their time on. Um, hmm. So this is why you know I don't I don't tell people not to do flashcards, but I think there's better uses than flashcards for vocabulary. That is, in terms of your your time invested in things, uh, I think the the best use of time is to is to be reading reading a lot, reading things that are relatively easy or not. If it's if it's an intensive type of reading experience where you have to look up a lot of words, uh, you're not getting as much exposure as you as you would by reading a lot of a lot of easy stuff. Um, uh, conversation. There's, I mean, there's not huge amounts of opportunities for conversation. Uh, you know, most of the people. Well, I don't. Most of my conversations now happen through video chat, um, yeah. either with friends or with students, or occasionally with more fluent speakers. Um, uh, listening to audio is really helpful, but there's just not a lot of good Greek audio. Um, so again, you know, part of my a lot of my a lot of my Greek experience just leverages off what's going on in Latin because the Latin community is larger and, and more active in. And so I spent a lot of time listening to, to Latin podcasts, uh, which helped my ability not only to listen, but also to speak uh, tremendously. Um, mm. Far, far fewer things to listen to in Greek. Yeah. Yeah. So far. That's yep. Um, so, I think the answer is probably the same in the last question, but currently from where you are now, mm-hmm. what things do you do to try to keep pushing your current level farther? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, partly it's driven by, by the, the vicissitudes of life. Uh, yes. I don't have a time, you know, <laughs> I can't just sit around reading Greek all day. Uh, um, sadly. <laughs> uh, so, but there's enough going on, you know. And not, you know, a lot of my a lot of my teaching is driven by what, where students are at, what they're doing, and so there's kind kind of enough of that going on at enough different levels that most of the most of the time I'm reading Greek uh, with different people at different levels uh, in different kind of modes. You know, some students are still some of my students are in kind of fairly traditional programs and need to pass traditional exams, and so we we work on that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and then for myself. Uh, just yeah, just trying to make sure I I'm reading things that interest me. Uh, I try and read a lot of easy stuff as well. Um, working through kind of different textbooks, different Greek readers, just to just to keep keep it light, keep it easy, um, but but get more. Um, and then yeah, a, a couple of convers you know there's a couple of conversation uh, opportunities I have each week uh, that keep me kind of speaking at a kind of a higher level. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So just from my own experience, um, I think I'm probably at a level that a lot of people are, you know, they've made it through a year or two of Greek grammar. You know, they're, they're fairly comfortable with the aid of some tools to read it, you know, mm-hmm. to read New Testament texts. Yeah. Um, but it's fairly simple coin a, right? Yeah. Um, so how do you get from, how would you say like, so, sorry. So then when I go try to jump into something else, say the apostolic fathers mm-hmm. or, uh-huh. yep. you know, another or like classical texts like anabasis or something yeah there's just so much vocabulary that's new and even with the readers and things where you've got footnotes it's like you're still having to look up yeah so much stuff how how would you say for most people who you know maybe don't have the benefit of you know teachers like yourself or others how do you get from 
from New Testament to I can read. Yep. How do you handle you the and, problem? Yeah. I think you try and flatten the gradient as much as possible. That is uh, one of the struggles, particularly for, you know, for students who come out of a Koine background transitioning to broader texts is it seems much harder. And I think it probably is. Um, other texts are just tend to be written at a higher kind of literary register. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're trying to, you're trying to flatten that gradient as much as possible. Um, and in one sense, the Voca problem never, never really goes away. Like I, I cannot read Homeric very well um, because the, because the the vocabulary in um, in Homer is is quite different, and so mm-hmm. um, just you know every second word I'm looking up and it's like ah oh, this means X, uh, but is a is a Homeric word for X? You probably know word Y. <laughs> um, that kind of problem never necessarily goes away. Um, so, I mean, apart from the, you know, the readers and, yeah, the Stedman, those kinds of things are really, I think they're really useful. I think I tell people to cheat as much as they need to. Um, that is, it, it's always fine to be looking stuff up or using whatever resources you can to make things as intelligible as quickly as possible. Um, but in terms of, yeah, the flattening, the, the flattening, the gradient kind of thing, it's a question of choosing to the extent that you, you have the freedom choosing texts that will make that gap as small as possible. Uh, so, you know, from the New Testament, um, going on to the Apostolic Fathers is probably still the easiest step. Mm. Um, uh, there's variation within the, the Apostolic Fathers, obviously. So something like Didache is pretty, pretty, shares a lot of vocab with the New Testament already. Um, but whereas things like some of one Clement, much more difficult. Two Clement, a different kettle of fish again. Um, and then, I mean, so, you know, the Anabasis is a, is a jump. It's a jump because the vocab is different because it's talking about a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. Um, one thing I tell people to do is try and be doing different things at different kind of levels. Uh, so if you're trying to breach that gap to say uh, Anabasis, um, but it's, it's intensive-ish kind of work, you're not able to do it kind of in a relaxed way. Um, it's to say, okay, well, out of, you know, out of 10 units of Greek study I have, whatever those 10 units are, 10 minutes, 10 hours, whatever, um, some of it will be working at a, at a more kind of difficult level, maybe, you know, 30%. Uh, but then I'm going to take some of the rest of the time and use, use it on something that's easier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, reading and rereading uh, the New Testament, um, that kind of thing. Um, so you're just, you know, you're challenging yourself at some things, other things kind of in the middle, other things you're doing that are that are relatively easy but reinforcing your language. Um, the other thing I I do with students, and I, I, you can do it yourself as well, is is just developing the ability to to ask simple questions, to ask and answer simple questions. So you can talk about the text in language, you know, who is this person? What are they doing? Where are they? Those very basic kind of having that question vocabulary and then the ability to frame answers based out of what you're reading. just really helps you kind of stay in the language with a text. That makes sense. Um, and when you read, would you recommend reading out loud? Uh, Particularly for people who are kind of still beginners or have not done a lot of reading out loud, yes. Um, uh, I don't read it out loud a great deal um, unless I'm in a, you know, in a, with someone. Um, yeah. Just because it's 
it's it's much it's i mean people don't read it out loud in general because it's slower right and right. it wears your voice out um but but certainly early on i think it's it's excellent um because you are um there's just a difference between reading silently and vocalizing and and the, the kind of the physical experience of just getting words out your mouth yeah um, and if you know if you can stand the sound of your own voice as well uh, reading aloud and recording uh and having things to listen to when you are not able to do other things uh can be useful True. yeah i um i'm working through acts 10 um for something and i i kind of done some pre-work through it and then i have a recording of it that i someone else did that i've listened to and it's interesting how having now read the text and worked through some of the vocab listening to it i can understand you know yeah machine gun speed uh, a lot a lot easier yeah. Yeah, the other thing I'll say is if you can't stand the sound of your own voice, uh, which is a common experience, uh, if, you, if you can find a friend and exchange recordings so that you're listening to someone else and then you're recording something that someone else can read, uh, that, that, that's useful. Yeah, okay. That's a good idea. Um, yeah, so my other question was, um, you know, what do you do for speaking and writing practice? But you've, you've kind of mentioned that. I mean, you have your students. I know you're working on variety of projects where you're writing and you've mentioned chat groups and things like that. So, um, yeah. Okay. And speaking of writing, are pretty different experiences. Um, I, yes. uh, I mean, I, I never did any kind of particular program to get where I am in terms of writing. Uh, usually I can write fairly simple stuff without too much trouble. Uh, although writing for other people involves a lot of double checking, <laughs> especially accents, accent marks. Um, yeah. Accent marks. Um, uh, but I, yeah, I would kind of encourage people to, to write to, well, to try and start writing probably a lot earlier than they think they, they might, but just to mm -hmm. keep it really simple, um, just keep things simple and, you know, target small and, you know, write a sentence, write two sentences, write, take, take a passage and, and summarize it in a simpler way, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think that's really all the, um, all the questions I have. I, you know, it was, it was nice to hear your story about how you got to where you are and mm -hmm. some of your thoughts on how, um, people would learn it. Um, do you have any, any projects you're working on that you're really excited about that you'd like to, like to mention? Um, yeah, so, um, a couple of things I'm, well, I'm working on a lot of things. Some things I'm working on more than others. <laughs> Um, so the, the Lingua Graeca per se illustrator project, uh, is something I'm really excited about. Uh, it's, it's, it's partly designed to do what Lingua Latina does, but partly not quite the same. Um, and so it's essentially, it's, I think of it as an open-ended writing project to create as much Greek text that, that flattens out the curve for anyone reading Koine or Attic to read interesting stories that introduce grammar and vocabulary uh, gradually and give kind of meaningful, comprehensible repetition. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think, I think I, a lot of people, because of the name, uh, think it's just going to be like a book and you'll read it and, and get to a certain point in Greek, like, like the Latin book. Uh, but really I try and think of it as kind of this kind of shared universe of Greek, Greek stories that, that people could read and read and, and, and contribute to. Um, so I'm working away at that. Uh, partly the, the writing part is, is interesting and challenging. 
but even the, the structuring part and kind of data going on behind it is also really kind of interesting stuff working out what what do people need to learn what do they need to be exposed to that kind of thing um, I was running a podcast uh, which is kind of on a uh, an unscheduled long hiatus um, uh, but I hope to get back to that as well to kind of produce more audio um, yeah yeah I um I've listened to various bits of the podcast while I've been running and jogging or you know whatever and I definitely appreciate uh, appreciate it I've as someone who's I'm both a learner and a, a teacher um, it's nice hearing it's nice hearing the stuff where we talk about pronunciation and some of the grammar and vocab stuff because it gives me an idea how I might use that with my students so yeah. I like that um, yeah I guess that's really about um, about it for me. Um, sure. I mean, the last thing I was going to say uh, uh, in terms of the question of uh, how does CI shape what I do? Um, I think there's this, this tendency for all kind of teachers and learners um, to, th to think that we need to understand language in order to learn it. That's kind of what's driven, you know, a grammar based approach that, that you need to understand language uh, in order to learn it. Uh, and so, you know, the, the reading in second language acquisition and understanding CI and what it's saying is, for me, it's kind of a, it's a, an anchor and a correction. Uh, there's a sense in which I, I enjoy grammar. I enjoy linguistics. I enjoy understanding how language works. Yeah. Um, but, but knowing that and kind of being pretty convinced that that acquisition happens when there's input and that input is understandable uh, kind of drags me back and says, what are you doing with your time and what are you doing with your students? Um, there's a place for grammar and a place for explanation, but but the bulk of what I should be doing, uh, both as, a, as an ongoing learner, but also as a teacher, is um, getting input for myself and creating comprehensible input for others. That's mm. what's going to drive acquisition. Um, so it's kind of a, a corrective and an anchor for the rest of my activities. Yeah. That makes sense. It's, it is interesting. I mean, my, my interaction with the research boils down to, if I understand it correctly, saying find stuff you can understand or that your students that pushes them just a tiny little bit and just yeah. rinse repeat until they can do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, again, thank you for your time. Um, I'm going to go ahead and kill the recording. Yep.